appreciate those messages in song. First of all, I would like to thank the elders of your church for the privilege and opportunity to, to be with you this morning, the first Sabbath of 2019. Our scripture reading came from Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. But I would like to take you to Jeremiah chapter 3 to see a related passage. And I just want to read in your hearing from Jeremiah, the third chapter, beginning with verse number 12. Jeremiah chapter 3, reading beginning with the 12th verse. I'm reading from the New King James Bible, and in the New King James, the scripture reads like this. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return backsliding Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord, and I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. My message this morning is entitled, A New Relationship. A New Relationship. I would like you to bow your heads, and I would ask you to take just a moment to pray silently in your hearts that the Holy Spirit would be with us as we study from the Word of God. Our Father who art in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your promise that if we ask of you bread, you will not give us a stone. And Lord, we come asking, knocking, seeking, believing, as you've said in your word, that everyone that asketh receiveth, and to him that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Lord, open up our hearts, convict and encourage us, give us yet a stronger desire to search the scriptures, for truly in them we have eternal life, for they are they that testify of you. Because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus, and for his sake we pray, amen. It was May the 19th of 2018. A certain Henry Charles Albert David was married to a certain Rachel Meghan Markle. 
We know him affectionately as Prince Harry. You may recall that when the relationship was first announced that it caused quite a stir for several reasons. First of all, Meghan Markle is not a British citizen. On the contrary, she was an American actress and from a family of no special reputation. Secondly, it was discovered that Meghan Markle's mother happened to be an African American. And thirdly, she had been married before and so she was a divorcee. However, Prince Harry loved her and so he married her. It was the most anticipated wedding of the year. It was broadcast all over the world. It is estimated that literally hundreds of millions of people saw the ceremony. The cost is estimated to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 million pounds. That calculates to approximately 43 million 104,000 US dollars. Interestingly enough, the Bible contains a Cinderella story of its own. You see, there are many illustrations in the Bible that are intended to help us understand the nature of our relationship with God. However, it is not enough for us to understand our relationship with God in the context of a king as he relates to his subjects or as a shepherd as he relates to his sheep or even as a loving father as he relates to his children. Because you see, as important and as biblical as these illustrations are, they don't go far enough. In some ways, they don't go deep enough in order to help us understand the nature of the relationship that God desires to have with each and every one of us. Jeremiah lived in a very fragmented culture. And it speaks to our day because we also live in a very fragmented culture. And by that I mean a culture in which there was no moral consensus, no subscription to absolute truth, no agreement as to what the purpose of life really was. And there's one thing that tends to become exceedingly important in all fragmented cultures, and that is sexuality, romance, and marriage. For a very simple reason. It's the easiest way of avoiding the cosmic questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? You see, we tend to reason like this. I don't know if there is such a thing as a supreme being. I don't know if there's an absolute standard of morality. I don't know if there's an afterlife or whether or not the Bible is true. But when I'm with him or when I'm with her, my life seems to have meaning because of love. The problem is that apart from God, we don't know what love really is. I would suggest to you that the entire Bible is a love story played out between God and his people. It is fleshed out all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy. You can find it in Micah. You can find it in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Song of Solomon, and of course in the book of Hosea. Why would God ask a prophet to marry 
a harlot. If you read Hosea chapter 1 in the New Living Translation, the second verse reads like this. The Lord declares, in this way I will illustrate how my people Israel has played the part of a harlot by departing from me and worshiping other gods. Have you ever noticed that the Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2? But it also ends with a wedding in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad, for the marriage supper of the Lamb is come, for the bride hath made herself ready. Throughout the scriptures, again and again, we see this illustration. Have you ever wondered why it is that as important as marriage is to us and to our society, that the Bible seems to suggest that there will be no marriage in heaven? You remember in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus with a riddle, and they said, there was a certain woman who married a man, but he died and left her no children. But she married a second husband, but he also died and left her no children. She had a third, a fourth, a fifth. In fact, she had seven husbands, all of which died and left her no children. And then they turned to Jesus and asked the question, in the resurrection, which one will be her husband? And Jesus responded, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God, for you see, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, for they shall be as the angels. And I would submit to you that the reason why the Bible appears to suggest there will be no marriage in heaven is because marriage is simply a symbol of something far greater than we have ever fully understood. It is a symbol of the relationship between God and his people. It is a symbol of the relationship between Christ and his church. I must have read Ephesians chapter 5 several times, the seminal passage in the New Testament on marriage. But when you come to the end, almost parenthetically, the Apostle Paul adds these words... This is a mystery, but I am speaking of Christ and his church. Ray Ortland penned these words. Marriage is not just another mutation of human social evolution. It is a divine creation intended to reveal the ultimate romance guiding all of time and all of eternity. Why is it that God was so angry with his people because of their idol worship? There are several reasons. Number one, simply because they were attributing to their idols the blessings and favors that had been given them by God. It was a blatant act of disloyalty. And then secondly, because they began to sacrifice their children to these idols. But then thirdly, they did not realize that in worshiping these false gods that they were actually worshiping demons. Turn to Psalms, the 106th chapter, and I'll begin reading with verse 35. Psalms 106, and beginning with the 35th verse. Again, I'm reading from the New King James Bible. Follow along in whatever version you have. In Psalms 106, 
Beginning with verse 35, the New King James reads like this. But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare unto them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. In Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, the Lord speaking to Israel declares, I did not choose you because you were the greatest amongst people. I chose you because you were the least. And then when you go to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, the Lord declares, you were like a newborn baby that had been cast off into a field, unwanted and unloved. Your umbilical cord had not been cut. You had not been washed or salted or swaddled. And I came along and said, live. It was I who nurtured you. I who took care of you. And this is the way that you reward me. You see, we have thought that Christianity was all about keeping the rules. But in reality, it is all about relationship. You remember in Exodus, the 25th chapter, where the Lord initiated the sanctuary service, he says to Moses in the 8th verse, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell amongst them. The truth, in fact, of the matter is that it has always been God's desire to dwell amongst us. You see, Christianity is not a system of intellectual moral philosophy. It is not a method of behavior modification. It is a dynamic, intimate relationship with the God who created us. He made us for love. He created us to be loved in fact, he created us for a relationship with himself. We have a tendency to believe that God's primary goal is to change our behavior. But in reality, his primary goal is to win our hearts. Because the Lord knows that if he only has our hearts, then the behavior will take care of itself. Jesus quoted Isaiah, the 29th chapter, where the Lord declares, This people draw nigh unto me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, God sent the prophet to the house of Jesse in order to anoint a new king over Israel. Eliab came before him, and the prophet declared, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to the prophet, Look not upon his countenance, how handsome he is, nor upon the height of his stature, for I have refused him. For the Lord does not see things as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, declared in the 51st Psalm, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The truth is, there are several passages in the Bible that say the same. And we'll find that as we page through the scriptures, that there are many chapters that give us a panoramic overview of the history of Israel. Several of them are in the Psalms, Psalm 78, 81, 105, 106, which we just read. And in the New Testament, Acts 7, as well as 1 Corinthians 10. 
There's a reason why the Lord repeats the history to Israel. We've heard the saying, those who do not study history are subject to repeat its errors. And the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, these things were recorded for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. But one of the most interesting chapters that gives us this history of Israel is Nehemiah chapter 9. And it begins with Abraham, whom God called out of Ur of the Chaldees and found his heart faithful. And of course, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob had many sons. And then we recall that the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. But God delivered them from their Egyptian bondage. But we need to remember that he didn't do it because they deserved their deliverance. He did it out of his love. He did it out of his mercy. He did it because he made a promise to his people. He rained down plagues upon the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, turning the rivers into blood. Then came the frogs and the lice and the flies and the hail that fell from heaven like fire on the ground. He destroyed the cattle and the vegetation of Egypt and finally he slew the firstborn. At last, Pharaoh was willing to let the children of Israel go, but then he changes his mind and he chases after them. And when the children of Israel find themselves between the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian armies behind them, the Lord opens up the Red Sea and they pass through on dry ground. I must have been 40 years old before I realized that the text does not say they were sloshing through mud. The Bible says they passed through on dry ground. He drowned the Egyptians. He gave them bread from heaven, water from a rock. He fed them. He gave them a pillar of cloud to follow them by day and a, a pillar of fire by night. And in all of this, what the Lord was saying is, I will protect you. I will take care of you. I will provide for you because I am your true husband. But the children of Israel were unmindful of the goodness of the Lord. And so Nehemiah chapter 9 declares that they threw his law behind their backs. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. They disregarded his goodness and his grace. They forgot about the miracles of deliverance. And so God sent prophets in order to turn them back. But they persecuted the prophets. They even killed the prophets. And so at last the Lord said, what am I to do? And so he allowed their enemies to fall upon them. And as they were slain by their enemies, they cried out to God. And the Bible says, the Lord delivered them. But the moment they had peace, after things were going well, after they were established once again, they returned to their idol worship. And so we see this repeated cycle of prosperity, and they forgot about God. And adversity, and they cried out to God. And prosperity, and they forgot about God. And adversity, and they turned back to God. And at some point, the cycle has to stop. 
Someone said, for 100 men that can handle adversity, there is one that can handle prosperity. Some of us are praying that God will solve a financial problem, and there's nothing wrong with praying for that. Some of us are praying that God will mend a relationship. It might be parent with child, brother with sister, husband with wife, and we should be praying for that. Some of us are praying for physical healing or for the physical healing of a loved one, and there's nothing wrong with praying for these things. But what I want you to understand is that we need to get to the place in our spiritual experience where we can say in our hearts with sincerity, if the Lord doesn't do anything that I ask him to do, if my situation never changes, I will still testify that God is good. On August the 9th of 2017, I received a phone call from my supervisor informing me that I was being laid off from my job. After some 20 years of consistent employment, promotions, commendations, I find myself searching for a job. One of the most important lessons that I learned in 2018 is simply this. Don't wish for an easier life. Instead, pray that God will make you strong enough to handle whatever problems and challenges may come. Because for all of us, sooner or later, our faith will be tested. Just like Job, who lost everything that he owned and then received the report that his children had been killed. His wife even said, why don't you curse God and die? He turned to her and said, you speak like a heathen woman. Shall we not receive good at the hand of God and not also accept adversity? The Lord giveth the Lord taketh it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible says, in all of his affliction, Job sinned not with his lips, neither did he charge God falsely. The Lord blessed me with a new job, a better job. I could not have imagined it was one of the best things that possibly could have happened. I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. You see, God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. We must understand that. He's not a supernatural bellhop, a genie in a bottle. And we must realize if our only reason for serving God is for what we can get from God, we are not really serving God at all. You see, God wants to be something more than a power that we go to when we are in trouble. He wants to be the center of our lives. He wants to be the reason why we get up in the morning. What exactly is idolatry? What is the modern equivalent today? It's really anything that is more important in your life than God. If making money or having money 
if that turns your crank, if that's more important to your self-image and who you are, if getting married or being married or having children, some great social or political cause, or even your looks, if anything is more important to us than our relationship with God, then that is our real God. We're in a transactional relationship with God. We're not in a love relationship with God. You see, the fundamental problem is that we want to date God, but we don't want to marry him. We want to date and break up or see him every now and then when we need him. But God is not satisfied with that. And the difference between a dating relationship and a marriage is the difference between a consumer relationship and a covenant. You see, a consumer relationship is a relationship that you stay in it as long as your needs are being met. But a marriage is a covenant relationship, and you do not have the option of getting out of it simply because your needs are not being met. Further, we need to understand that the unconditional love and affection that we seek in human relationships is ultimately found only in God. Romans, the fifth chapter, the Apostle Paul writes, Scarcely for a righteous man would one die, possibly for a good man some might dare to die. But God has demonstrated his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think of the happiest moments of the most wonderful relationship that you have ever experienced in your life. And then multiply that times a thousand and you will only have a hint of what God has in store for each and every one of us. You see, if we don't understand this divine romance that is fleshed out in Scripture, our natural tendency is to load spiritual freight into romance, sex, and marriage far greater than a human relationship can ever bear. Ernest Becker, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, wrote a, a book entitled The Denial of Death. And in that book, he, he writes these words. What is it that we seek when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less, to be rid of our faults, our feelings of nothingness. The love partner then becomes a means of fulfilling one's whole life. We look to our love partner to make us real and good through their love. Needless to say, human partners cannot do this it must inevitably fail no matter how good the partner is. At a wedding, a bride is probably wearing more clothing than she will ever wear at any other time in her life. And hours are spent preparing the bride for the moment when she will walk down the aisle. And when the bride looks to her friends and attendants 
and asks the question, how do I look? She only wants to hear one word. Perfect. You look perfect. And what God is saying through his prophet Jeremiah is that he's already seen you naked. He knows about all of your weaknesses, your character flaws, all of your shortcomings. He knows the sins of your yesterdays. He knows who you are in its fullness today. He even knows the sins you will commit tomorrow. And in spite of all of this, he loves us just the same. The fact of the matter is, and this is the gospel, there is nothing about us that deserves the love of God. We are weakened, damaged, degraded, and broken in every possible way. And yet God commendeth his love towards us in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Further, I want to share this encouraging word. Whatever pain or disappointment you may have experienced in human relationships, God has experienced the same. Look at Hebrews, the fourth chapter, and the 15th verse. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, we read of Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, the scripture says, For we do not have an high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The truth is, God understands our suffering. He knows the pain of divorce. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it feels like to be in a bad marriage. He understands intimately what it means to be deserted, to be rejected, to be misused or neglected. He knows what it feels like to be taken for granted. He understands at an emotional level, what it means to love and care and sacrifice for someone that does not love you back. I want to close with this. <clears throat> what Jeremiah is telling us is that by nature, our hearts are inclined away from God. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In the 13th chapter, verse 23, he asks a rhetorical question. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? How then can ye do good who are accustomed to do evil? And then all of our solutions to this problem only make the problem worse. And our solutions are either legalism or cheap grace. We either want to be saved in our sins or we want to be saved by our works. Jesus said, 
I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him will bring forth much fruit, but without me you can do nothing. So what's the solution? The solution is Jeremiah 31. The Lord says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people. Ezekiel 36, 26. The Lord declares, I will give you a new heart. I will take out of you the stony heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. But he cannot do it against our will. Steps to Christ, page 47. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve him. Then he will work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. John Newton wrote a hymn, and he put it like this. What does it mean to have a new heart? He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. When our pleasure and our duty are the same. That's the new heart. Our Father who art in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for your message from the prophet Jeremiah. Lord, we thank you that in spite of our unfaithfulness, you have been faithful to us. For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, and even death does not separate us from you. Lord, lift our minds heavenward to the most holy place of your sanctuary where you apply the benefits of your sacrifice. Lord, when you are seen coming in the clouds of heaven, we want to hear from your lips, well done. Not because of anything that we've done, but because Jesus Christ has shed his blood. We ask it in his precious and his worthy name and for his sake we pray.